Can viruses help us cure cancer? The team that unboiled an egg? And how do you become a college professor anyway? All in this episode of Goggles Off. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Goggles Off, the show where I get outside of the lab to talk to scientists about their lives and their research. I'm your host, Brandon Malady, and today I'm joined by Professor Gregory Weiss. Uh, Dr. Weiss, how are you today? Good. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for coming. This is uh, the first professor on Goggles Off, so this is going to be, wow. you know, probably the episode I'm the most excited for, and this is a really big deal for me, so I'm totally fangirling <laughs> over here. Um, so the, I, I just kind of want to give the audience a little bit of background uh, into your education. So you completed a bachelor's in chemistry at the University of California at Berkeley in 1992, mm -hmm. and you went on to get a PhD from Harvard in chemical biology in 1997, and from there became a postdoctoral fellow at the company Genentech and finished mm -hmm. that up around 2000. Uh, exactly. From, from there, you found success at UCI as an associate professor for a little bit, and then you ultimately became a tenured professor where you now hold the title of professor in chemistry, molecular biology, and biochemistry. That's right, yeah. Wow, that, that was tough because most of the time the the education list isn't that long. So your your CV is kind of, I mean, it's 22 <laughs> pages, man. You got you got a lot of accomplishments. <laughs> well, that's nice of you to say, but truthfully, I've just been doing stuff I've found enjoyable all this whole time. Very cool. Um, so now that we've kind of got, given a little education background to you, um, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what your lab at the University of California Irvine does and some of the research focuses that uh, you're exploring? Okay, well, um, first again, thanks for the invitation. Excited to talk to you about this topic. I think of myself as an inventor. I like to invent new ways of seeing our universe and augmenting our senses. You know, we humans are kind of limited. We don't see in the UV. We don't. We don't see much much of the universe that surround us surrounds us. So scientists like myself have to go off and invent new technologies that allow our senses to experience the universe in all of its riches and learn new things about how it works. So what I wanna do is I wanna invent new chemical technologies that allow us to get in and observe biology at the molecular level, at the atoms and bonds level, and really understand how it works. And if we can do that, then we go in, and once we get those new technologies, then we start using them to explore biology, uncover its mysteries and write new papers about how it, how it works, tell the world how it works. And then we go on and invent the next thing. So that's how I think of ourselves. We're chemical inventors. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. I love that. Um, one of your uh, chemical inventions uh, that kind of combines a lot of the different flavors in your lab, kind of you got single molecule bioelectronics going and you got early you know, cancer detection going. Uh, and you have, you know, modifying bacteriophage to, to mm -hmm. serve diverse, you know, uses, uh, the virus bioresistor that your lab kind of uh, completed in 2018 or has been working on for the past 16 years or so. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? You know, what sure. is the virus bioresistor? Why is it, you know, a big deal? Why do, why do I think it's so cool? Th th thanks for asking. Uh, first, let me get a, get a, uh, a conflict of interest disclosure uh, out the door first. Okay, so that technology has been licensed to a startup company that I started with a, my collaborator, electrochemist Reg Penner. 
and the two of us have a financial benefit in the company. So University of California reviews our relationship, approves it. And I even have other colleagues who uh, um, check our data before we publish, just to make sure that we're not hyping the company, uh, which would be obviously unacceptable and it wouldn't be something I would want to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the conflicts of interest disclosure. Let me tell you about this technology that we invented. So what we came up with is this new kind of spongy material that um, absorbs biomolecules and also conducts electricity. And what we found is that we can incorporate benevolent, totally harmless viruses into the spongy material. And we could train those viruses to grab onto biomarkers uh, in solution. And um, it, when they do that, it ends up changing the conductance through this material, this virus bioresistor. And what's great about this is it gives us a way of quantitatively telling how much of this disease-associated biomarker is in solution. And the solutions could be things like, you know, blood or urine or other physiological fluids. And um, at the end, and it also it can be done really inexpensively and super fast. I haven't mentioned how fast it is, but we do sensing in 60 seconds or less. Yeah, uh, that was one of the lines in the virus bioresistor articles that I read. And I was like, wow, 60 seconds or less. I mean, that really is point of care diagnostics, right? So you, you know, you have an issue or maybe you don't, maybe you're just on an annual checkup and you want to see, you know, do I have any cancer biomarkers in my blood? And so if the doctor can get you that test and that result back in 60 seconds, I mean, that's infinitely better than a colonoscopy or a pap smear, or any of these kind of archaic. Another thing that stood out to me when I was reading your paper is that the cancer diagnostics field, or at least the reliable ones that are used in the, you know, hospitals every day have largely remained unchanged for like the past 20 years. And so that's, that's kind of crazy to, that, that a new technology hasn't come and made it easier. I, yeah, I, so I completely agree. Uh, uh, this field is ripe for disruption in a positive way that's going to totally benefit patients, benefit doctors by making them more successful, and ultimately benefit all society. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm like yourself, Brandon, I'm shocked that we still do this thing where we collect samples, send them off to this lab, and then the patient is literally waiting for weeks. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes the physician gets the data back in a few days, sometimes not. But regardless, it's going to take a couple of weeks before the physician can sit down, review the records, and then, you know, call the patient and talk to, talk to him or her about this really consequential diagnosis. How much better would it be to be right there, right with the physician and the physician's telling you, hey, nothing for you to worry about, that checked out, levels are normal, we're going to look at it again in a few months, okay? Oh, and by the way, this whole thing cost you 20 bucks or something like that, you know, because it can also be made really inexpensively. Yeah. That would be so much better. And that's the revolution I want. Yeah, and it's crazy because, you know, a pap smear or a colonoscopy is kind of something so invasive and, you know, kind of dreaded by, you know, I don't want to get a colonoscopy anytime soon. <laughs> no. um, and so, you know, you're, you're less likely as a patient to, you know, get that colonoscopy and, you know, get that result, you know, even go into the doctor to get that because it's, you know, kind of scary or ad adverse. And, you know, with a simple, you know, if I could just give you a mill of my blood and you could tell me 60 seconds if I, you know, am at risk or, you know, if I have cancer or, or something of this nature, that would be a game changer in the community, obviously. So. I, I totally agree. That's what's made me run to work every day for the last 16 years or so. Um, but 
I'm totally with you. So patients feel this, feel very strongly about these types of tests. And so there's a big problem with compliance of just getting patients back. And I'll give you one quick example of this. Uh, patients who have been successfully treated for bladder cancer are required to go back to their physician's office, usually a urologist, and get scoped out, have their bladder scoped out by threading a you know, very fine uh, optical fiber up into their bladder. And you can imagine patients are not crazy about that. And so compliance levels are really low. And we know we could be more successful at treating this disease if uh, we had a better way of doing this. And patients would obviously appreciate that as well. So the, that's uh, our lab in conjunction with Phage Tech, the company that I alluded to earlier, is running a clinical trial, actually a clinical test to develop technology to look at recurrent bladder cancer and try to make that really terrible disease, uh, which comes back in like 50% of patients who have been treated, make that uh, a disease that's so much more manageable and so much less painful for patients. Its applications are not just limited to cancer, actually. Um, there's actually, you know, a bunch of other things you can do it, uh, with it. So what are the kind of the other applications that you're excited to apply this technology to? Well, I think it's going to be really killer for infectious disease. Those, those are the kind of things where physicians need to know right away if someone has, you know, some particular disease or not. And um, so I could see it being very useful there. I also want to have uh, something, and I haven't quite worked out the details on this, but we're thinking about it, something that would work in an ambulance uh, where, again, you really need an immediate response. Uh, so we're working on a bunch of things where the physician needs that insight right away. Now, I contend that physician also needs insight for cancer. Uh, I could tell you as the spouse of a cancer survivor that waiting two or three weeks is just completely unacceptable. You know, the patients are stressed out of their cords, mm -hmm. uh, unnecessarily so, right? It's just, they're stressed out because that's the way our system is. And I know that if we were getting information right that same day when we were seeing our physician, it would have really helped a lot of the, the worst aspects of fighting cancer, which is the psychological aspect, mm. right? So on top of everything else, if you're waiting around for this scary, you know, diagnosis, it just adds to the, the incredible toll that that disease takes. Mm -hmm. And so I know this is going to be really helpful for uh, patients in the future. Very cool. And then kind of beyond that, uh, the papers that you had right now, it seemed like they were only looking at one cancer biomarker, but you mentioned in a paper that, you know, your future projects could have, you, you could have a whole slew of virus bioresistors with different bacteriophage, all seeking out different cancer biomarkers. And then through this way, you could have kind of a whole, you know, broad swath approach to see if, you know, there's any sort of cancer biomarker in there. That's exactly what we want. We want to get a fingerprint for cancer biomarkers. Uh, cancer is a very heterogeneous disease meaning that there's a lot of different types and different biomarkers, depending on what stage. And so it's really useful to get a whole bunch of these at the same time. And that's what we're aiming for. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, and then, so your, uh, in your background, it kind of said that you had your early years in organic chemistry and that was kind of mm -hmm. your, where you first kind of fell in love uh, with, with science, I guess. Uh, can you talk about the research you did uh, during your, you know, graduate career or your, or when you were in, uh, working on this organic chemistry? Sure. Why don't we just start with undergrad? That's when I felt I really did literally fall in love with organic chemistry. I was a pre-med and, uh, my father was a physician. I was really excited about this idea of going to hospitals, um, 
But a funny thing happened. I found that I just didn't like the smell of hospitals. <laughs> and as much as I loved this idea of a, of a medical career, I really didn't like the way the hospital smelled. And at the same time, I was taking organic chemistry and I just literally thought, this is so cool because it explains so much of the universe around us. Mm -hmm. And so um, I found a laboratory at UC Berkeley to work in. And um, let's see, one of the projects we worked on was this project to build a database of rings that are connected together. So three rings that are connected together for use in drug development and drug design. And uh, yeah, it was actually a really fascinating project. It was sort of an early um, artificial intelligence project or something like that, you know, drug dis automated drug design project. It was really fun. I, I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, so yeah, I became hooked very quickly. I, I also hate the smell of hospitals. And I am an avid believer that like uh, that yogurt, that yogurt, frozen yogurt place. It's like, I, I think all frozen yogurt places smell exactly like hospitals. And so yeah. I, I avoid them at all costs. It must I be hate the disinfectant or I, Yeah, I, I hate that smell. It's just disgusting. Mm -hmm. It smells like, I don't know, death. Um, okay, and then kind of, how did you find yourself going to Harvard uh, following that undergraduate? And then why, why did you even decide to pursue graduate school? I mean, that's such a lofty goal. Well, um... You know, so I love so I loved being in the laboratory and I loved coming up with new experiments and things like that. But I knew that I'd have to get a PhD to be able to 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 drive the ship, you mm -hmm. know, to actually run the operation. And so it was pretty obvious that I wanted to go to graduate school after undergrad for, for that reason. But um, you know, I think I got really lucky in this regards at landing at Harvard. Um it's uh hugely competitive. And I just, um, I, you know, sometimes you just get lucky, I guess. And uh, I'm not sure how it exactly happened, but I ended up in my like dream laboratory as a graduate student. So again, that was some element of luck, I think. That's all I can, can think of to explain it. So wow. Wow. Feel... That's, that, that's really cool. Good for you. Yeah. Harvard is, uh, I saw that and I was like, oh my God, what a, what a beast. Um, you know, yeah. I, I would say it's a, I don't know what, so I think, so I'm a, I guess I gotta tell you, now putting on my University of California hat, I will tell you that what we do at University of California is just as effective, just as good, and just as um, special as what happens at Harvard. I don't think that the teaching there is any better or anything like that, but um, it was a fun place to be because I met some really amazing other, you know, classmates, that was really great. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think, uh, you know, UC does a really, really good job. And so, um, yeah, so just, you know, I just, I don't want people to think there's like some special thing about Harvard that's really unique about Harvard. Yeah. Honestly, uh, there are really amazing programs in at the PhD level that are just, you know, in the Midwest that are kind of unheralded, that mm -hmm. are really outstanding. Um, University of California is very lucky that almost all of the university programs are equally good. It's just one of these powerhouse uh, state schools. Mm -hmm. But then every state has at least one really great university where you can get just, just a first-class education, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, and then, I mean, the department and the, the name of the department isn't so important as just the fit 
you know, of the individual going to the school and, you know, the lab that you're actually trying to get into, right? You know, if the, 100%. School, if the school does exactly what you're looking to do and that's exactly, you know, fits perfectly, you're going to be happy and you're going to have a good time. You're going to perform to your maximum, you know, and if you go to Harvard or whatever and you hate what you're doing, then you're probably not going to do so well. So it's all about fit, I think. Uh, Couldn't but, agree more. Yeah. And I do like the word happy that you use there. Because the truth is, if you run to work every day and you love your project and the people you're working with make you, uh, you know, have a sense of joy for what you're doing and feel uh, worthwhile, then you're going to be so much more successful, mm -hmm. right? You're going to want to go home at the end of the day and keep reading about it and keep doing it. And uh, it'll drive you uh, to better heights, you know, to be more creative, to be more resourceful. And so all those things are just reasons why I think... Uh, you know, the fit is everything in choosing graduate school and not really about the name or the location or anything like that. Uh, and it should really all be about who you end up working with. I think that's the second thing I said after you asked about Harvard is, oh yeah, I worked for my dream professor. That's the key is like, who do you get to work with? You know, do you, or how much are you gonna learn um, from this individual that's gonna, you know, carry you for the rest of your career? So that becomes really, to my mind, the single most important decision uh, after being an undergrad is who are you going to work with next? Hmm. Uh, and then after that, do, when you do a postdoc, same deal, who are you going to work with next? Yeah. And then kind of going off that, why did you choose to then do a postdoc? And then why did you choose to do the postdoc, uh, at Genentech as, you know, kind of an industry, as opposed to, you know, more of an academia postdoc? Cause you know, those are kind of the two paths after the PhD, right? There's, or the traditional, path. I mean, there's a bunch of paths you can do whatever, but you know, academia and then industry are kind of like the big main ones. Yeah, great question, Brandon. It, this was a really tough call, but I wasn't uh, totally sure what I wanted to do after I got my PhD. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to a startup company, big pharma company, or back to academia. And um, I was having a very frustrating PhD. That last couple of years of my PhD was sheer frustration. And I remember, for example, I was doing this experiment where I was collecting these tiny little beads with compounds on them, drug pharmaceutical compounds. And at some point, someone uh, opened the door to the laboratory, this like gust of cold, icy cold, wintry air blew in, and all of my tiny little beads went flying up in the air, down on the ground. And so I had to do an extraction off the ground to find all these little polystyrene beads. And I was thinking, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And I was looking for a better way and I found this technology called phage display, where instead of displaying the things on polystyrene beads, instead you display the molecules on viruses. And the great thing about viruses is they encapsulate DNA. So all of the encoding information is right there for you, right when you need it. And so I found that really beguiling. And uh, I found that one of the top practitioners of phage display was this uh, really outstanding scientist named Jim Wells. He turned out to be at Genentech. Um, but at this point, I was so excited about this idea that I would have followed him to University of Alaska uh, Fairbanks or wherever uh, to, to learn from the master how to do this technology, uh, how to do this technique and how to apply it. So that's how I found myself at Genentech. And honestly, that was a fantastic place to do a postdoc. It turned out to be just an awesome place. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always looked at Genentech and like, oh man, I wanna go there. That place seems so incredible. Uh, maybe at some point in my career as well. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a really innovative place. And you know, that's the thing. These days, some of the most innovative science is being done 
at these pharmaceutical companies. So if you could find the right position, and I'm not saying all the positions are the right ones, but if you can find that right one, you could do incredibly creative, innovative, and path-breaking science and publish some amazing papers along the way mm -hmm. uh, and also have a real blast as well. Awesome. Okay, now this is, I'm sure, what every listener is going to be curious about. I'm super curious about this question. Uh, how does one go from postdoc? How does one get into an associate professor position and then ultimately a professorship position? I mean, that must be so hard. Could you, could you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, first, quick correction. I went to assistant professor and then associate professor. Gotcha. Okay, sorry. so you, you have to, there's a, you know, universities are a very hierarchical place. There's a whole ranking here. So mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to think that I skipped the uh, rank. Anyway, so yeah, so um, the, I think one aspect of this is why did I want to, you know, I'm, I was having so much fun at Genentech. Uh, honestly, it paid pretty well. They, they, kind of let me do whatever I wanted. I published like 10 papers in two and a half years. It was just so much fun. Why did I want to go and do uh, become a teacher or, you know, return to academia? And the, the straight answer is I just love teaching. I love standing in front of a classroom, talking about organic chemistry. Uh, also, I love the energy that arrives on campus each spring when a new class of students arrives. I just find it incredibly invigorating. So this was a really another one of those tough calls in my career, but I'm really glad I did it. So I applied for academic positions, and you know I think your question indicates uh, you know some great trepidation that I had, which is why would anyone take seriously an application for an academic job coming from someone who was happily ensconced in industry? Uh, and I could tell you one of the questions I got asked was, well, if you're so great, why doesn't Genentech just offer you a position? You know, why isn't Genentech trying to keep you? And uh, the short answer is Genentech has a policy of not hiring its postdocs, or at least they did at the time. So anyway, um, I applied to a bunch of places. Back in those days, we actually uh, wrote applications on paper. Uh, wow. And you know, I dropped them in the mail. I sent out like 60 of these things. And I was kind of blown away that a whole bunch of uh, interviews started coming up. And I went to some incredible places. But you know, at my, at my heart, the thing I love most is the University of California and this public institution. Because I really believe in our mission of educating everyone, you know, educating the um, students across all different classes, across all different backgrounds, ethnicities, um, you know, races. I love that aspect of University of California. And um, I was just thrilled when I started getting interviews at at UC schools, because that was always my dream. My dream is, is what I do now, actually, uh, because I just, I think that what University of California represents is a shining example in um, academic, uh, uh, in, you know, in academia. Anyway, I'm starting to, to wax poet, rhapsodic, kind of off topic, but no, no, it's I all really, uh, yeah. So I, in answer to your question, it was a very, very tough call. And um, I think the fact that I published a bunch of papers was kind of a calling card mm -hmm. that gave me credibility. The other thing is Jim Wells, uh, my advisor, um, was pretty well known. He had published some amazing, amazing papers even before I, you know, uh, actually well before I started working for him. He was an established, phenomenal scientist. So that helps as well. That kind of opened some doors as well. 
And then, um, you know, the single most important thing is you come up with these proposals. And I think my proposals were pretty unusual because I wanted to combine chemistry and biology and specifically use viruses to explore chemistry. Very cool. Very cool. Um, you, you mentioned that you're, you know, now living the dream, uh, as it were. And I'm curious, when did the dream start? When did you, you know, first know that you wanted to be a scientist? Like, how, how did it kind of you know, get on your radar? Why not any other career? Why not astronaut, firefighter? You know, how come you settled on scientists? I, well, I think I have to go back to second grade. In second grade, I just loved digging in dirt and sand. And someone told me that, oh, you can dig up dinosaur bones. You know, someone made a joke like, oh, are you looking for a dinosaur, fossils or whatever? And I, I learned about being a paleontologist. And so ever after that, I told people I wanted to be a paleontologist. And at some point I stopped liking dirt so much which I think is probably just as well. And I started thinking about being a neurochemist uh, or something neuro. But um, I, my entire life, I've always wanted to be a scientist. I've always really been, a, I've had a lot of affinity for chemistry in particular, just because it's um, a reductionistic science, you know, in the sense that you learn a few simple rules, you learn about the periodic table, and then you can use that to explain so much. And I find that whole concept really beguiling. I like this idea that there's sort of a, a set of simple rules, thermodynamic laws, things like that, mm -hmm. that run the universe. And if you master those, then you have this really powerful set of tools to explain the universe. And so um, sometime also when I was really, really young, like I'm talking um, maybe third or fourth grade or so, I remember my mom showing me a periodic table of elements and uh, telling me that everything on the universe is here. And I refused to believe her at first. I said, all right, what about Jupiter? I don't see Jupiter. And she'd say, oh no, it has this material. And then we see this particular gas is on Jupiter and here is hydrogen here, you know, and so on and so forth. That really blew me away. And I think, I think from that moment onward, I wanted to be a chemist. So I think I've always wanted to be a chemist of some sort really young, but I also wanted to be a physician. And uh, I think if you asked me at other points, I might've told you something else. But I think in the back of my mind, I've always wanted to be a chemist. So yes, this is my dream gig. And wow. talking to you, talking to other people about science is really what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. Hmm, very cool. Yeah, I remember I kind of a similar story. I remember having my mind absolutely blown when my dad was like, see, this is carbon. Mm. Everything alive has this in it. Like it's <laughs> yes. made out of this. And I'm like, what? Like, what? like, why is this so special? And I remember just kind of like platforming off that and mm -hmm. learning about the universe and staring up at the stars and stuff. And it just is so great. And chemistry, I really love because I found myself, it wasn't like I needed to memorize a whole bunch of things. I didn't really need to mm -hmm. you know, constantly be like retrieving memories. It was more of, you know, like you said, I learned a set of rules and then I learned how to think based off those rules. And so when I was taking a test or something like a final, I wasn't like, oh, I had to, you know, remember what that page looked like of my notes. Cause it was like, oh no, I'm just thinking. I just have to right. think, you know, with the, with the rules that I have at my, at my disposal. And it was always so, so great and so rewarding. Chemistry is, yeah, I love chemistry as well. It's the best. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I, I hope you never lose that sense of wonder. I because hope that's the best part of uh, science, right? That sense that the universe is uh, an oyster that for you to explore and just that there's endless, boundless mysteries and new things to learn is, oh my gosh, that's really the thrill. And that's the, um, you know, the second best part of uh, being a scientist. First best part is um, helping people see that. And then the second best part is appreciating it yourself. Definitely, definitely. 
Um, could you speak a little bit? Uh, you know, we obviously met at a graduate school interview. So I was interviewing at the University of California at Irvine and mm -hmm. I was really interested in bacteriophage. So I re requested to talk to you and we had, I think we had a great conversation. We hit it off. Absolutely, on, yeah. Obviously you're here. Highlight of the, the recruiting season this right. year. You're hanging out with me now. Um, but I really want to try to help you know, people in a similar situation as me, maybe applying for a PhD, kind of know what someone in your position is looking for, you know, what would attract you, what would be, you know, a knockout interview, uh, something that, you know, qualities you're looking for in a potential, you know, PhD candidate. Okay, great question. Um, I feel like I'm going to uh, give away some secrets, but that's okay, because I know your reviewers or your uh, listeners are exactly the, the awesome talented future scientists that we want to track to our program. The single most important thing I look for in candidates is passion. I can teach you everything else that you need to know. I could teach you about, you know, thermodynamics, kinetics, uh, whatever you need to know, uh, you know, we could sit down and explain it uh, in really simple terms and you'll figure it out quickly. But I can't teach you passion. Either you have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, uh, this is going to be a tough, um, four or five years as a graduate student and that even tougher career thereafter. So that's what I'm looking for. So I'm looking for people who have that uh, little spark of energy, of thrill, uh, and also just a desire to see the world, to just be fascinated by stars. You know, exactly what you said. You know, the, the you go down to the beach and you're not just like sitting there, you're just like puzzling over all this immense amount of, diverse marine life that's present, you know, even just the diversity of sand particles that are there, diversity of everything, right? Or just, you know, enjoying it, um, you know, just for the sensual pleasure of the sun on your skin, but then also just enjoying it for thinking about uh, all the little creative sparks that it gives you of just being in this environment. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who in any situation are applying all of their senses. Uh, sight, of course, but then also even smell and feel and deep, deep observation, you know, that ability to see the universe and really extract out of it more than the average person. And you know what's funny, Brandon? I find this quality in artists. I find that people who also have some additional passion are also going to be really good at the bench because that additional passion gives them a different perspective and additional dimensionality to their thinking, right? Then it's not just like what I learned in textbooks and, you know, Newton's laws or whatever, then it's much more of, yeah. But you know, the other thing is I want to capture the essence of what's going on here by, you know, the fact that I like to sketch it or the fact that I see more colors about it. Do, do you know what I mean? And so I find that kind of observation makes someone really successful as well. So it's passion, observation. And then of course, I'm looking for the usual, the ability to work well together, um, the ability to be coachable. Uh, that turns out to be a really critical thing. And um, the other aspects of being a scientist that I think we overemphasize turn out to be less important, I believe. Hmm. So for example, we... I don't know why, but society thinks that only really, really smart people can be scientists. And I find that's actually not really the case. I find that there's a, a Poisson distribution, which is how we chemists like to describe a bell curve. There's a Poisson distribution of intelligences and everyone can bring their own spark and their own special abilities to being a scientist. And that 
differences, those differences makes a really rich tapestry that makes a successful laboratory team. And so what I'm looking for to fill out my team is people who have um, diverse skill sets, who have a real passion for the stuff, who are interested in combining different disciplines in multidisciplinary disciplinarity. And um, above all else, just um, some innate hops, uh, which is things like observations and uh, ability to see the world a little differently. Um, so all those things uh, is what we're looking for. And I hope the interview, I, uh, I know you shined in this interview that I gave you, but I hope that interview kind of gave you some idea of, what, of, of how, um, how faculty are thinking about what makes a really good scientist because it's not an easy thing, right? I can't just go in there and say, hey, uh, tell me about, you know, about uh, why you want to come to graduate school and then expect an honest answer that's going right. to, you know, determine whether someone's a good person to have on the team. So that becomes, it becomes a real challenge, actually. And it's something I'm really passionate about. It's very cool. Um, and yeah, I totally agree with this notion that, you know, you don't have to be this guy behind you. you don't have to be Albert Einstein to be a yeah. scientist, right? I mean, it's not, it's not totally necessary. I mean, like, for example, growing up, I was never super good at math, but, you know, perseverance, you, you, you work at something, you can learn whatever you want to learn. You just got to work hard. Um, yes. So I think, I think hard work is a much, you know, bigger indicator of success. And then also, you know, your ability to fail. I often right. call myself a professional failure because I go into the lab and I'll, I'll do an experiment and it won't work and it'll happen 10 days in a row. It won't work. And, you know, if you're, if you're the kind of person that'll get really upset and that'll, you know, throw a wrench in your whole day and you'll start taking out on your lab team and, you know, you'll start feeling bad about yourself. That's going to slow your progress. But if you can stay relaxed and calm and just know that, you know, you just got to, you know, you got to learn from that failure and adjust and fix it. And then boom, success. And once you get that success after all those failures, it's all the more sweet. So agreed, 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 agreed. Yes. So uh, I don't know anyone who's at the Einstein level of intelligence in science. I actually know a few people who were probably at that level who dropped out of science because in some ways science is super frustrating, right? You have a lot of failure. And so I agree with what, what you said, you know, uh, a key attribute for successful scientists, the ability to pick yourself up, do it again, tweak the variables a little bit, hope that this time it's, and then do it again and do it a bunch of times, almost never works the first time. So yeah, I agree hundred percent with everything you said, but just yeah. never works the first time, but actually uh, you did one experiment, which I kind of wanted to touch on. I don't really want to mm -hmm. beat a dead horse to death because you've talked about it so much. You kind of found internet success with it. But uh, this idea of leading the team that unboiled an egg, that was oh, a project cool. that seemed to work out right away. Uh, can you describe that a little bit? You know, what was sure. that about? Sure. So um, I guess the origins of the project go back to a trip I had in Australia I was traveling for business. I was consulting for a company in Australia and I had some extra time. So I looked up one of the best universities in Perth, Australia, University of Western Australia. And I just went around and started meeting faculty there. And I was in this guy's office, Colin Raston, and he was telling me about this crazy gadget that he had invented that applies shear forces. So shear is the property of, of uh, sliding. So he came up this way of putting mechanical energy into molecules sliding past each other. And I was sitting there wondering, what am I ever going to, you know, how much longer do I have to, and then all of a sudden I realized, wow, you know, that's exactly what I need for my problems back in my lab, because I knew that my lab was having trouble folding proteins. Mm -hmm. We'd express proteins in E. coli, and instead of coming out as soluble, correctly folded proteins, which are really beautiful, instead they were coming out all 
tangled together as gloppy messes. And uh, you know, within 15 minutes, Colin and I had this great collaboration. We've been collaborating and good friends ever since. It's been awesome. But um, so getting back to the unboiled an egg, it's sort of a protein folding problem. Mm -hmm. When you boil an egg, what you're doing is you're taking the nice liquid raw egg and the, the proteins in that raw egg. And as you probably know, eggs are very high in protein. So those proteins are getting heated up. And when they heat up, they unfold and then they tangle around each other to the point where they become this mess. And it's this, you know, um, opaque globby solid. Uh, and that stuff, it turns out because the proteins are so tangled up, they don't want to refold around each other. So I thought we can use this shear stress to pull the tangled proteins away from each other so they can get a chance to refold without getting tangled with each other. Okay, so anyway, we did this experiment. We go back to you know California. We get one of these VFDs and it arrives with this really talented graduate student, Michaela Mundy, and uh, it works great. Like it literally, like we plug this thing in and within a day or so, we're getting great refolding results. And I was totally blown away by this. But um, the reviewers refused to, the reviewers or a peer reviewed paper refused to believe us. They, they, uh, they said something like, you know, it works for your special case proteins, but it'll never work for my proteins. And so therefore I'm not interested. You know, this is really frustrating because one of the things you have to do is not just convince the reviewers that what you've done is scientifically correct, but that it's actually important. Otherwise, why publish the paper? If it's not important, no one wants to publish it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so anyway, I start having this duel with the reviewers and you know, it's like playing whack-a-mole. They would propose a protein, we would do it, and they'd say, oh, try it on this other one. That's not, a... and finally, after a bunch of these uh, going back and forth, uh, one day I was walking to work and I was kind of in a huff uh, because I was thinking about these reviewers and you know muttering to myself. And then I realized we need to do something everyone agrees is a tough example. And I had eggs for breakfast and I was thinking, we need to unscramble the eggs because everyone knows you can't unscramble. And then I started thinking about it a little more and I realized, well, actually that's gonna be hard because egg yolk is complicated, but egg white actually is surprisingly homogeneous. It really is. A lot of ovalbumin is in egg white. So egg white, unlike egg yolk, is pretty straightforward. So you know, we started doing this thing where we would take egg white, um, pull apart the molecules, and then give them a chance to refold using this vortex fluidic device. And this worked really well. So uh, yeah, it worked surprisingly well. And it became, I think you called it an internet success. So it's like, yeah, in only five years, we became like this overnight success. Or maybe it was two years, I've lost track, but it was some amount of time, like years went by. And then all of a sudden, like people were like, what, you unboiled an egg, you can do that? So go figure. Yeah, crazy. Like something like a million hits on on YouTube or something. And you did a Reddit, ask me anything. That must have been a lot of fun. I bet. I bet that was. It was cool. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Truthfully, it is awesome because I don't get to communicate with enough people. Mm. Uh, you know, I talk to my organic chemistry class. I talk to my graduate students. But to look up and see that there's seventy thousand people in the room for the Reddit AMA with me who are following these answers to completely crazy questions mm -hmm. is totally mind blowing. And, right. and just to have, you know, people who aren't scientists engage in these high, yes. you know, these high level questions that, you know, maybe they don't even realize how, how much they are a scientist right now by asking these little, these little Reddit questions. But yeah, it's really great to get the community involved in this because I've never really thought anything in science was so difficult, you know, that, that you couldn't explain it to a normal person, you know, I mean, it, with, you got to take out a little bit of the jargon, but mm -hmm. you should be able to communicate to a general person. And so, 
yeah, I think stuff like that is really great. I think the Reddit asking anything is awesome. I would love to do that at some point in my life. Uh, yeah, I just got to get well, a little more success. That might happen, Brandon. It could happen. Actually, yeah. it could I have happen. a good feeling about it. I, I think it really could. Um, the Reddit AMA is a really powerful uh, uh, forum to communicate to the public. And it's especially exciting if you're talking about something like thermodynamics and kinetics, not using those words because those words are intimidating, mm -hmm. but using other words to describe these really fundamental concepts that are at the core of how we think about biology and biochemistry. And that's super exciting, right? Because that's information that uh, the listeners would otherwise never, ever encounter. Mm -hmm. And so I find that really thrilling. Yeah, it is really cool. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, kind of give just a little bit of background to the unboiling the egg, right? So you mentioned that this this rotary device that applies the shear stress mm -hmm. is really good at refolding uh, proteins that have misfolded or you know they, their fold is wrong in some way. Um, and just to kind of give the audience a little bit of context, you know, a protein's function is often dictated by its fold. So, you know, much like a wrench is really good at unscrewing a bolt because it fits around it perfectly, you know, the, the function of a protein is dictated by its shape most of the time. Um, and I know in my lab, I've, I've designed proteins where I want to attach, you know, I have a protein of interest, which is what squids use to camouflage. And I can't really see it under a microscope. So I want to attach a fluorescent molecule, uh, mm -hmm. a fluorescent protein called M cherry to it. So I can, you know, see it under a microscope and get a lot of great data back. Uh, but upon purifying the protein, I found that it's not red. Why isn't it red? You know, it's supposed to be red. Uh, That's really cool. Right. And so it, it wasn't folded properly. And so mm -hmm. I had to, you know, kind of turn to the internet and start reading stuff and try to figure out how to refold the beta barrel of the M chair right. and get that structure back to get that, you know, fluorescence back and get the color right. back for, for the substance. Otherwise the post-translational modification doesn't take place and you right. never get the floor for. Right. And so I was really, I had to try to refold it and it took me, I, I ended up doing like a dialysis mm -hmm. uh, kind of, kind of set up and it took me like two days, right. And your method, like, like what, a couple minutes. Yeah. Yes. So the short answer is yes. With a big caveat. The big caveat is you have to know a lot about the protein to begin with. So, you know, so Dallas is a little more straightforward because you just, you know, plug it in, leave it, go away. In my method, you have to like know something about what its optimal buffer system is mm. and redox conditions and stuff like that. And so it might take you a couple of days to get to that 10 minutes. Right. And um, that's a level of nuance that I wasn't as effective at communicating, but it's actually a really important point. Um, so, yeah. Sure. But, but I mean, if you, once you, you know, optimize it, then that bottleneck that would have, you know, yes. been a two day process Snap. is now 10 minutes. And so, you know, Agreed. it's just optimization. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so I guess kind of hey, just that's a, a super interesting experiment. It was cool. Uh, yeah. What did you, did you eventually find that the RFP and the squid protein talk to each other by like fret by fluorescence transfer or uh, anything like that so yeah we were trying we're trying we're, this project is kind of still ongoing uh mm -hmm. so we're trying to get them to see if they talk with fret uh but what we were really trying to use it for is i was trying to attach some of the squid protein to m cherry which will give you that red color and then also yes. separately to egfp which is going to give you the same basic protein but it'll give you a green color right and what i wanted to see is if because my protein will undergo uh, an oligomer, so it'll just be one protein, and then it'll associate with a bunch of itself to make uh, a larger multi-protein right. complex. Mm -hmm. And so I was curious if I take uh, if if these proteins add kind of like 
you know, a jawbreaker. So you have the inner mm -hmm. shell and then another shell adds around another shell, another mm -hmm. shell. Or if when you, if I were to add more protein, right? So if I, if I had a red shell and I add the green, does the green just come around or yeah. does it actually reform the whole assembly and then get inter, intermixed throughout? So that was that's kind of the question. question. So it's a mixing question. Yeah, it's a mixing yeah, question. That's um, neat. It's so yeah, experiment. that's still going on. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, it was really fun. Um, anyway, we're kind of running out of time, mainly on my end because I have to go to another meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wanted to ask you, uh, just going forward, any advice you might have for a young scientist just starting their career or, you know, thinking about getting in the field? Uh, what are some things that you would want to say to someone like that? Well, the most important thing I could tell you is you have a really bright future as a young scientist. This is a super exciting time to be doing science. And I can't think of anything uh, more thrilling on the planet to do than to be inventing new things and, and observing our universe. So that's the first thing. Okay. Second thing is um, get used to reading fast. There's actually a book that you can get on uh, reading fast and then just start doing it. Like the more you read, the better, you know, um, read a whole bunch of journals every, you know, every week. Uh, and then find good people around you. Like, I feel like I learned as much from the graduate students in my laboratory and the postdocs in my laboratory as I did from the faculty. And so really choose uh, good environments that have a lot of other people of like mind who you like talking to and you like talking about science with. So those individuals can be incredibly important and helpful to you. And uh, who knows, maybe they'll be lifelong friends, like some of my friends who, uh, you know, who I went to graduate school with. But yeah, so I think all of those things, um, read, uh, you know, get started on it, read and find a good team of support uh, are all really good advices. So I think awesome. that's what I would recommend. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure, oh, pleasure for me. Yeah, I'm just totally, I'm like shaking. I'm so excited. I can't wait to edit this <laughs> afterwards. So yeah, thank well, you so much. You're welcome, Brandon. Uh, thanks a lot. It's been a real pleasure. And um, I just want to wish you much success going forward. I think you have a really exciting career ahead. Um, and I also uh, shouts out to your um, listeners because I'm excited to hear their science in the future. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Goggles Off. Hopefully you learned something new. I know I sure did. If you liked the episode, please drop a like and subscribe to the channel. Uh, really mean a lot as I continue to grow the podcast slash show and bring the latest and coolest science to all of you. So thank you so much again for listening. Till next time, this is Goggles Off.